And uh, Paul went on to say something a bit mysterious in chapter 3, verse 2, and we looked at this last week too. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly, earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. So what does that mean? It means that uh, when we accept Christ, our old sinful nature dies and the Holy Spirit makes us alive uh, in the spiritual realm. And this, the spiritual realm is, of course, where Christ reigns, and our true life is now hidden with him. So in other words, we inhabit two realities at the same time, this material world and the true, perfect spiritual realm. And I guess the Matrix movies weren't that far off, were they? Because in, you remember, if you recall the Matrix movies, um, there was a simulated perfect world, and the real world... Uh, in the real world, people were getting farmed by the machines for their energy. <clears throat> and the difference here, of course, is that reality that Paul is talking about is not simulated. It's the true and perfect world realm where Christ reigns. And this is actually the ultimate reality, even as we inhabit this world. Now, it's all, all very well to say that, but so what? What? What does it look like? In what ways should our lives in this world be impacted if we take this, this true spiritual realm to be our ultimate reality? And you might remember in Colossians, so, so Paul talks about the certificate of debt, and then he goes on to say in the, in the later part of chapter 2, don't let yourselves um, accept any additional rules and regulations for your salvation. Christ is enough. And then at the start of chapter 3, he, he talks about um, this life that is now hidden with Christ and God. And then he goes on to our passage today. Where he, he launches into this, you must put to death then the earthly desires that work in you, everything to do with our, our sinful nature. So how does that work? What, how does his logic go? <clears throat> so we're going to uh, look at that today. Now, I've heard this a few times, <clears throat> when people first hear the news that God forgives all of our sins, our past, our present, our future sins, the natural response is to go, great, now I can go and sin, because it's already forgiven. Yes. And that's the default human condition. And this was the response of some of the early believers uh, in Romans. And that's why Paul wrote in Romans 6.1, shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? And his response, by no means. So why is that? Well, it relates to what Paul talks about today. In our passage today, <clears throat> Paul makes it clear that the grace of God does not mean we are free to sin. It means we are free to not sin. It doesn't mean we're free to sin. It means we're free to not sin. <clears throat> we have all undergone a change of state. We were one thing and we lived in a certain way, but now we're another. An example of real life is um, marriage. When I got married, I had a change of state. I was a single man living a single life, and then I had a change of state. I got married to Sarah, and um, I changed to a, being a married man in a married life. And I had to leave behind my old ways of doing things. Well, I try to. <laughs> because they don't work anymore. I had to die to my single life, if you like. 
I now need to include Sarah in my decision making. And I found that really hard when I first, I mean, when, when you've been living for 45 years as a single man, it's kind of hard to, to not be able to make a decision anymore without asking the missus. <coughs> and she needs to include me in her decision making. So we can't live as single people anymore. So if Sarah went out and bought a, a $50,000 pottery kiln, I'm not going to be happy if she doesn't tell me, if I, if I don't get included on that decision making. And if I go out and buy a $50,000 boat, well, it's probably going to be more like a $150,000 boat, she's not going to be happy with me either, and fair enough too. If we, if we, if we carried on that type of shenanigans, um, our marriage would be hugely dysfunctional. On the way down, mate. On the way down. On the way down, that's right. That's right. <laughs> so this is a similar picture to what happens when we accept Jesus as our Lord and Saviour. We can't live as we used to anymore. We have to consider him because we belong to him now. In the same way as, as, as we have to die to our single lives when we get married, we have to die to our old lives when we accept Christ. Or to use Paul's language, our life is now hidden with Christ in God. And that change of state is bad news for our old sinful nature, the part of us that demands our right to ourselves and delights in sin. Now this is a bit weird, isn't it? Because Paul's description of what's going on in our lives has a done aspect to it and are still working on that aspect. So the done aspect is, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. That's done. right? So our human sinful nature has died and, and our life is now hidden with Christ and God. But he goes on to start verse 5, which is the start of our scripture today. Put to death, therefore. That's a still working on it thing, isn't it? So there's a, there's a done aspect and a still working on it thing. So how does this work? Is it done or is it still working on it? Well, it's both. The key to understanding this is that God calls things that are not as though they were. And that's from... Romans 4.17. So what does that mean? In the spiritual realm they exist. In the material world they don't exist yet. Well they started to exist. They're in progress. That's why the Bible says that we, can be, we have been made perfect forever. Hebrews 10.14. But we're still being made holy. That's done. And yet there's, there's still things going on in this life. And one day God will bring heaven to earth. And that's where ultimately where the material world will fully catch up with the spiritual world. So why does Paul launch into this huge list of sins that we saw just now? Sexual immorality, so that's any sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman, and also disordered sexual activity within a marriage relationship. And there's all sorts of other stuff, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, there's idolatry, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language, all the stuff. How does this follow from what? he's been talking about. Think about it this way. If our true life is now hidden with Christ and God, what does our true life look like? Is there any anger and rage and malice in the presence of God? Sometimes. <laughs> no, Bill. No there's, no, there's there's no evil in the presence of God. That, that's where our true life is. right? So God wants to take that life and make it manifest in this life. That's the journey that we're all on here. 
There is no sin of any kind in the presence of God. There's only pure and utter holiness. So that's our role. So that's our journey. And our role, what is our role in this process? Can we just relax, put our feet up? No. We have to repent. We have to repent. What is repentance? Turns out that there's a bit of controversy about this word. And the word repent itself comes from the old French word repentir. I don't know if I said that right, but it's repent with an IR on the end. And it means to feel regret for sins or crimes. For example, if you cheat on an exam at school, then you might feel bad afterwards. That's, that's what it means, that, that's what the old French word means. To feel regret for sins or crimes. But this is quite different from the New Testament Greek word, which is metanoia. From meta, changed after being with, and noio, think. In other words, the Greek word used in the New Testament think means to think differently afterwards. Think differently afterwards. Changing your mind after being with. And this, this verb for mind, noio, is actually a verb. A doing word, <coughs> which means to apply mental effort needed to reach bottom line conclusions. <coughs> so this speaks of, I think, deep soul searching and examination, seeking understanding. And it's interesting that uh, way back in 1896, a theologian called Treadwell Walden wrote an article claiming that the common translation of metanoia as repentance misrepresented the words lexical and theological compass. And we can see why now, can't we? Because repent means to feel bad, but metanoia hasn't got anything about feeling bad about it. It means to change your mind. And, what, and, and what, it's more than just mind, it's beliefs. It talks about deep stuff. What we really believe is in our hearts. That's what the scripture says. And that, it's that kind of stuff that we're talking about, to change your mind. Why is that? Because when you deeply change your mind about something, you're going to change your actions. Right? You're going to change, you're going to change direction. You're going to go in a different way. If you thought that going skydiving wasn't, oh, this is a silly example, but if you, if you thought that going skydiving was a great idea, and you got up on the plane and the door was open, you go, oh no mate, I'm not going there. And you change your mind. You're, you didn't jump out of the plane. You landed in the plane and then you swore you'd never do that again. Right? So that's, an, so that's an example of how you change your mind and it affects your actions. And it's not just... A, that's a silly example because that's, that's just like a... I don't know, a trivial example. But what the Bible is talking about here is deep stuff. Deep, deep stuff. Yeah. A heart, a heart change. Change of heart. So while metanoia has nothing to do with feeling remorse, it doesn't mean that it's not part of the overall process. It just means that unless you change your mind after deep, deep reflection, you haven't repented. And we can see this in 2 Corinthians 17, where Paul says, Godly sorrow produces repentance. Sorrow comes before repentance. It's not repentance itself, right? They're different things. So when you hear the word repent and repentance... From now on, remember, it's not, not about feeling bad, although that's part of the process. 
Repentance is actually changing your mind, changing your heart. And most Christians, a lot of Christians, struggle with all sorts of issues, and they might be sorrowful about them, but nothing much changes because they don't go down deep into themselves with the Lord uh, and find out uh, what are the deeper issues driving these struggles that they haven't repented of. In his book, Captured by a Better Vision on Pornography Addiction, Tim Chester writes, It's easy for your big obvious sins, like surfing the internet for pornographic material, to conceal the deeper sins that fuel your struggle with pornography. But unless you recognise and repent of the sin patterns underlying your addiction, you won't be fighting the right battle. Nobody wants to be fighting the, right, the wrong battle. So we have to look what's behind our actions. What's going on in my heart? Why do I keep on doing this? Why do I keep struggling with anxiety or stress or whatever? And the good news, I think, the Christian life says, you don't have to live under that anymore. You don't have to. You're free to not sin if you like. You've, you don't have to live with these things anymore. But it's quite a journey isn't it, to deeply change. And that's, I think, reflected in Paul's wording. Put to death. <laughs> Put to death. That's a serious... Now, occasionally, we've got some sheep on the property, and occasionally they get... We put them to death. And it's not, it's not an easy thing. It's not a good... You know, it's difficult. I don't really enjoy that part of it. I like this, the chops. <coughs> but I don't really like the putting to death. But the put to death here that Paul uses has a figurative meaning, which is to cut off or sever anything that energizes. Anything that, or everything that energizes. So we've got to find out what's energizing what we're struggling with, what we're conscious of, and deal with what's driving it. It's not, it's, it's a, it sounds simple, but it's not easy. So Paul's words, put to death, means that the desires to carry out the deeds of our human nature are incredibly strong. And we, we all know, we're all familiar with that, aren't we? So strong that overcoming them is best described as putting to death that which is longing to burst forth into life. <laughs> if we're going to put something to death in ourselves, we're going to have to agree with God on the nature of our sin. We're going to have to change our minds about it. Especially if it's something that we like doing. We're going to have to repent. So there's deep sin patterns that energise and produce all these things. So what are these sin patterns then? Why are they so powerful? There's a guy called James K.A. Smith who says that the reason our human nature is so powerful that we are essentially, ultimately, desiring animals, which is simply to say that we are essentially and ultimately lovers. To be human is to love, and it is what we love that defines who we are. Our ultimate love is constitutive of our identity. Okay? So René Descartes wasn't quite right when he said, I think, therefore I am. It should be, I love, therefore I am. We love, 
You think about it. What drives you? What you've, you've been captured by um, a vision. I want to be a nurse for Kristen. I want to be a nurse. That's that's wonderful. And I and I'm going towards that. I'm going to get training. I'm going to try and get I don't know part time work or something. You know, um, we be, we get captured by a vision, and and our hearts respond to it, and then we we go for it. We're God made us to love, to desire. And that's what James K.A. Smith says. What we love is always aimed at an end, a vision of human flourishing, a telos that we long for. In other words, what we love is a specific vision of the good life, and we talked about this before, that will have all sorts of components. Ultimately, when what we love is aimed at the wrong thing, we will manifest all sorts of destructive behaviour like this, what Paul says. Why are the desires of our human nature so strong? Because our hearts have been captured by the wrong vision. A Christian man once said to me, I just love porn. And I hadn't ever heard that put so bluntly before. But he just doesn't love porn, he loves something deeper than porn. He just hasn't articulated that. There's something that is energising his addiction to pornography. He loves a telos that is articulated by porn. This is a disordered love. He's loving the wrong thing. Call it lust. Yep, yep. The scriptures would say that's idolatry. So what are we to do with our disordered loves? Because we've all got them. <laughs> it's easy to see everyone else's disordered loves. Not so easy to see our own disordered loves. If we're going to correct our loves, first of all we're going to have to articulate what it is that we love so much. And then we're going to have to repent of it. We're going to have to change our mind or change our heart. We're going to have to change the deeply held vision that our hearts and minds long for. We're going to have to be captured by a better vision which is the title of Tim Chester's book. Is it going to be simple or easy? No. It's going to be difficult and messy. We're going to have to take the Lord's hand and ask him to examine us. Search me, O God. We're going to have to allow him into the deepest recesses of our hearts because the reality is every significant step forward in my own addiction and my own struggle was a revelation from God. It wasn't something I figured out by myself. I was like an idea dropped into my mind. I was like, ah, is that what's going on? It might have been someone speaking. It was a revelation. It was God speaking to me saying, that's you. <clears throat> Do you think you'll be able to take this journey with God into your heart if you don't believe that your certificate of indebtedness has been cancelled by God. If you still think that your sin is a problem with God, that he's still angry with you. So, oh, you did that. That's very bad. Now get outside and don't come back in until you've said sorry and done something, gardening or something. There's no way that we're going to allow God into our hearts if, we, if we're not completely at home with God. You think about it, when, when you go to, the do, the, go to a doctor and they poke and prod us in our most intimate places, don't, don't they? 
Yeah. Why, why do we allow doctors to do that? Because we trust them. Right? If we, if we didn't trust doctors, we, we just say, no thanks, mate. No, you're not going there. <laughs> it's the same with God. If, if God will never be able to reveal our disordered loves to us if we don't completely trust him and allow him to examine our hearts and bring to the surface that which is energising all of the dysfunction in our lives. So, what ground have we covered today? Five points. The wonderful grace of God means that we are not free to sin. Instead, we are free to not sin. That's the first point. <clears throat> There's something badly wrong if we get excited that God's forgiven me, therefore I can sin. That says that there's a disordered love right there. Why? Because you want to go and sin. <laughs> As followers of Jesus, this is the second point, we exist in two realities simultaneously. First, the true ultimate and perfect reality is our new life hidden with Christ in God, and secondly, the reality of this world. The journey that lies before each one of us is to allow God to make that ultimate perfect reality manifest here in the um, our physical reality now. And this will involve putting to death our sinful nature and all of its evil desires. Why? Because you can be sure there's no evil in the presence of God. And that's what he wants to make manifest in our lives. Thirdly, the role, our role in the process of putting to death our sinful nature and all of its evil desires is repentance. And repentance doesn't mean to feel regret or remorse. It means to change your mind, change your heart. Repentance is not just a one-off event. <clears throat> For us as Christians, it should be part of our way of life. We should be on this journey of always allowing God to change that. Okay, change that, change that, change that, change that. And then eventually we will be transformed into his likeness. Fourthly, to change our mind is not a shallow or simple process. It actually involves taking God's hand and accompanying him on this deep journey into our hearts where he reveals to us our disordered loves. And that's not comfortable when God reveals a disordered love. I can tell you from experience. It's not comfortable. But it's necessary if we're going to resolve some of our issues. And the last point, point number five, if we think that our sin is still a problem between us and God, there's no way we're going to trust God for that journey. That's why Paul began this, this whole section with this wonderful news that our certificate of debt has been cancelled. It's not an issue with God anymore. It's acceptance of God's incredible grace that allows us to trust him enough to poke and prod us in our most intimate places in our hearts. So I've got some homework <coughs> for you this week. I want you to set aside some time where you can be with God, just you and God, and enter into prayer, invite him to have access to your heart. Remind yourself, thank God that he sees you as perfect because you are in Christ, and then in that moment ask him to reveal to you whether you hold any disordered loves in your heart. 
That's going to be the start of an ongoing conversation, right? That will go on for the rest of your life. But this is the mahi, the work of us as Christians. This is our journey that's before us. And that's how we will be transformed. So let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your incredible grace. It tells us that we are made perfect forever, even as we are being made holy. And Lord, we just pray that we will deeply accept this truth <clears throat> so that we can allow you into deep into areas of our hearts that we can ask you for revelation about why do I do this? Why am I struggling with this? Lord God, lead us onwards and manifest the reality of your presence, your beautiful, holy presence. May we live out the reality of your holiness in our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen.